Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 104th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, we're talking about legislative happenings, not in North Carolina, but at the legislature in the state that shares a border to our north, Virginia. As you may have seen in some recent headlines, Virginia is in the midst of their legislative session right now, where a number of clean energy-related bills have been introduced. And we thought we'd share those updates with you, given the fact that while the state may be different in many regards, we share a lot of the same priorities and challenges as it relates to the clean energy sector. Additionally, I know we have many listeners who are also doing quite a bit of work in Virginia, especially after their passage of the Virginia Clean Economy Act back in 2020. And while I normally allot some time at this point in the podcast to cover news and updates, I'm going to just jump right into today's show. Clean energy. Clean energy. Our guest today is an environmental scientist turned into policy advocate, currently serving as legislative director for Climate Cabinet Action. She has over a decade of experience working on climate and environmental issues across the country and has worked on clean energy legislation in several different states. With her colleagues at Climate Cabinet, our guest helps build climate policy capacity and expertise in state legislatures nationwide and helps state and local candidates run, win, and legislate on climate change. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Blair St. Ledger Olson to the podcast. Blair, welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thanks, Matt. Really happy to be here. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit more about Climate Cabinet and the work that your organization does across the country? Yeah, absolutely. So at Climate Cabinet, we refer to ourselves as the money ball of climate politics, which means we're the ones helping the underdogs make big wins on climate policy in states across the country. Almost 90% of climate electoral dollars actually go to federal races, looking at U.S. Congress, And that's really why Climate Cabinet is focused on state and local, because that's the gap. There's no path to meeting federal climate goals without state and local leadership. So we're helping those leaders run, win, and legislate on climate. So I know you're focused on Virginia, but does Climate Cabinet have any activity here in North Carolina? Yes. So I'm our legislative director, and we do cover electorally 25 states. Legislatively, we cover about seven to 10 states, depending on the time of year, really. North Carolina is a state that we have been paying attention to. And I remember when North Carolina actually passed their biggest clean energy policy, HB 951, a couple years ago. Yeah. And it's been a little bit of a slog since then. And and we'll continue to cover what's going on at the legislature once our our short session kicks off coming up in April. But before that point, there's been a lot going on in Virginia. So let's talk about some of the legislation that has been proposed. And now with, as we were talking about prior to starting to record, with crossover happening, where some of those bills currently stand. So 
before we talk about the legislature, though, and, and what's going on there, I'd love to just quickly reflect on the Virginia Clean Economy Act, which was Virginia's big piece of clean energy legislation a couple of years ago, to get a better sense of how that's been implemented thus far and where the state currently stands in their clean energy development efforts and where does Virginia currently stand overall in clean energy leadership nationwide? Yeah, absolutely. So if you if you go on Solar Energy Industries Association rankings, Virginia is now ninth for solar deployment across the country, which is a significant increase since we were towards the bottom of the pack back prior to 2020. And now with passing the Virginia Clean Economy Act, VCA, as I'll probably refer to it, in 2020, we have 2.6 gigawatts of offshore wind in progress with the Coastal Virginia Offshore Wind Project. We have about 10 gigawatts of solar that has been approved, but actually currently less than half of that is actually on the grid providing power, so 4.7 gigawatts. But there's a lot of hurdles between those committed, promised projects and getting them interconnected into the grid. So when we passed the VCA in 2020, we sent this signal that we wanted to bring clean energy and its industry here to Virginia to help meet our decarbonization goals. But we need to continue to send that signal because we shouldn't just be ninth. We should be first. Sorry, North Carolina. We're going to come. We're going to you know, come for that title. But we want the best projects to move forward here. And while we've taken some major steps, thanks to action by the legislature, thanks to action by the federal government, there really do still remain deployment challenges at every level of government, federal, state, local, lots still to be done. I will say, though, my favorite takeaway from the VCA has actually been watching other states follow in Virginia's footsteps since we passed in 2020. Virginia did become the first state in the South to pass a 100% clean energy policy, but then we saw North Carolina follow with HB 951, a couple of years later, we saw Illinois pass their Clean Energy Jobs Act in 2021. Minnesota and Michigan passed their own versions of this policy in, in 2023, just this past year. Actually, New Jersey has started taking a look at their own version of this in November of this past year and are still poking around on that. So it's just really exciting to see this, this policy lever really sweep across the country. And it really reinforces the importance of public policy in driving clean energy deployment and development. You mentioned Virginia really climbing up the leaderboard in large part attributed to the Virginia Clean Economy Act. And we've seen a lot of businesses here in North Carolina that really rode that wave of success around QF utility scale projects starting in 2007 here in North Carolina around the renewable portfolio standard shift a lot of their attention up to Virginia to develop projects up there after the Clean Economy Act had passed. So exciting to see all of that development going on just north of, of the border here. So I, I want to dive into what's going on right now. And so before, though, before we talk about the, some of the proposed legislation that's across the table, you know, what have been some of the, the priorities related to clean energy that advocates like yourself have been focused on in the state moving forward that are in need of addressing at the legislature? Yeah, absolutely. And, and some of this can be addressed by the legislature. Some of it could be addressed from a regulatory pathway, whether or not that's at our state corporation commission, our version of the public utility commission, or the governor's agencies. But right now, legislation really is the most viable pathway. So that's where some of these are taking place. 
But are the clean energy and climate communities really looking high level, I'd say, at five issues. Expanding competition within clean energy deployment, which helps prioritize affordability. Increasing distributed generation. So what I mean by that is things like rooftop and community solar. Energy efficiency, which is sort of this unsung hero of our clean energy transition, but it doesn't get enough love anywhere. And then we want to also do things like balance utility scale solar deployment with protecting our our lands. So and honoring land conservation commitments. And then the big shiny one, of course, is implementing federal programs. The Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, those brought some pretty incredible resources, not just to Virginia, but to states across the country. And those two bills are projected to result in $14 billion of investment in Virginia with, when you match those funds, a total economic impact of $103 billion for the Commonwealth. And that's billion with a B. So that's that's pretty significant. And Virginia needs to be working as hard as it can to bring down all those federal resources. I want to go back to the, the, the first item or priority that you brought up in expanding competition. Can you elaborate a little bit further on what that means for, for a state like Virginia that's already operating in PJM territory up there? Absolutely. So prior to the Clean Economy Act, what's called power purchase agreements or third party ownership of clean energy wasn't really a thing. And so things like letting schools go solar, for instance, or having independent clean energy companies come in and build a utility scale solar array and then sell that electricity either to the utility or back to the grid. Those were things that we started to untap in the Clean Economy Act, but they were only just untapped. We have a lot of work to do on that. Right now, no more than 35% of these energy goals within the Clean Economy Act can come from third power parties. And we'd really like to see that expanded because we do know that when there's increased competition, it tends to drive rates down. And we want this this transition to work. And it won't work if it's not affordable and accessible and done in a way that meets Virginia's energy needs. So we need to increase the amount of players hopefully partaking in this transition in the state. And that means jobs. And first and foremost, this clean energy transition is about getting jobs and good paying jobs as well. Not not just jobs that barely, you know, barely make it, but jobs that really are well above the medium income range, can meet families where they are, help put food on the table. These are these are really good paying jobs. And part of the the purpose of of hosting this conversation here, you know, one is for organizations and businesses who are looking to do work north of of North Carolina up in Virginia, but also for the folks that are doing work here in North Carolina to draw parallels and similarities between what's going on in Virginia to what's going on here in North Carolina. And a number of these priorities that you've elevated here are things that we're having very similar conversations about in North Carolina around things like expanding competition, around some of the issues related to clean energy deployment and development goals, but then seeing a lot of project attrition when it comes to actually interconnecting some of these projects. So very similar issues and priorities going on across states. So I think lots of opportunities to collaborate on some of these moving forward. So now that we've talked about some of the priorities that are on the radar, I I would love to hear about some of the legislation that's currently in front of the General Assembly and and what that stands to mean for, for the state moving forward. Absolutely. So even though there were bill limits put in place, slight bill limits, I'll say, but bill limits put in place this session, 
This session has actually had the most introduced energy bills I have actually ever seen. And this is my seventh year working in Virginia. So even in 2020, where we passed, it was Virginia's first year as a Democratic trifecta. There were bills galore. This year has still had more. So I think that shows really the excitement that's been growing in the Commonwealth on this issue over the past few years. Some of the bills that I've really been taking up my time and my attention, shared solar, one of the things that was taken out of the Clean Economy Act or watered down when we were working and passing in 2020 was shared solar, what others might refer to as community solar. So we've been working to build coalitions over the past couple of years to bring that back. And there's bills in both the House and the Senate side that are moving forward to expand shared solar in Dominion Territory, one of our IOU utilities, and then have it exist for the first time in APCO Territory, our second largest utility. So that would be huge. Then we've also got energy efficiency. I uh, said earlier that energy efficiency is the unsung champion, and I really think it is, not just in Virginia, but nationwide. And so there's actually a bipartisan approach to what's called being called the SAVE Act or Savings Achieved Via Energy Efficiency so that we can save dollars and save how much energy we have to put out there. And that has those bills have also crossed their respective introductory chambers. And then there's a couple that are maybe a little more new concepts to the Commonwealth. So we've got the Clean Energy Innovation Bank, which is this green bank concept. I talked about bringing down federal dollars. This creates a mechanism to do that. And for every $3 million that the Commonwealth would put into this bank, the federal government would send us $97 million. So that's a pretty massively awesome ROI, really good investment from Virginia's perspective. And then a local solar siting bill that is really about addressing restrictive solar ordinances that localities have been placing in Virginia. I know that's an issue North Carolina is dealing with as well. Everyone's dealing with that one. And then something called GETS, which is G-E-T-S, Grid Enhancing Technologies. And this is the first year I'm starting to see these bills across the country, not just in Virginia. What it is, is basically smart tech that can help our our transmission lines currently do more with less and sort of apply systems and technologies in place that can more efficiently route electrons. And actually, RMI came out with a report just this past weekend that said in PJM territory, if we were to fully implement GETS technology, we could quick, more quickly bring six gigawatts worth of clean electricity onto the PJM grid within three years. So when we've got transmission congestion, when we've got project planning congestion, Gets is sort of a short-term way that we could get around some of that. So it's an early conversation starter. It, in the U.S., it's used really actually widely in Canada and Europe, but I'm really excited to see some of these more new concepts get, get airtime here. So I want to ask a couple quick follow-up questions here. So you mentioned seeing a, a number of introduced bills this session around clean energy, but I think it's also important context for our listeners to to understand what the current political makeup of the General Assembly is up in Virginia and the governor's office. So can you maybe just quickly break down what that looks like as compared to North Carolina's Democratic governor and Republican supermajority in the legislature? Yeah. So Virginia, this past election in 2023, secured pro-climate majorities in both the House of Delegates and the Senate. We do still have a Republican governor for two years, Governor Glenn Youngkin, who has 
had, I'll say, a mixed a range or array rather of positions on clean energy. So there are some places that I think this legislature can work with him. And there are other places that I think we probably can't. But that client, that pro-climate majority in each chamber is only one vote. So it's 51 to 49 in the House and 21 to 19 in the Senate. And so if you have one single person flip, your bill dies. So that means you're really having to keep tabs on just how much you're placing in front of the legislature when you've got 40% new members, which is a pretty uphill educational hill. And you also have to really get every single member in line. There is no margin for error. So that means you're balancing a lot of different priorities. There's a lot that is possible, and there was a lot that was introduced, and I am really excited for some of the things that I think we're going to see come out of the legislature this year, but I also think it's a building year towards the 2025 legislative session, the 2026 legislative session in Virginia, and we're setting the groundwork for that now. All right, so digging in a little bit more, you talk about pro-climate majority. Is the pro-climate majority comprised of bipartisanship legislators up in, up in Virginia? I think if you splice the issues down a little bit more narrowly, yes, you start to see bipartisan support. I don't know if I would go so far as to say there is a bipartisan pro-climate majority here. There is for the first time ever this year, it's been started, the Conservative Energy Caucus, I think is what they're calling it. So there are groups working to bring in more Republican members into these clean energy conversations and see if on things like solar interconnection issues, for instance, that there are opportunities for bipartisan support. But last year was a pretty spicy and massive election. And so it's going to take some time, you know, calendar wise. That election was the first weekend of November. Virginia gavels in the first week of January, essentially. And there's two massive holidays in between that. So there's not a lot of time to simmer and settle post-election season once you get into the building here. So I think think I'm hopeful on getting more bipartisan support in the future. But I think this year people are really just figuring out what their, you know, their caucus leaders positions are, how this building works in general, massive amounts of policy knowledge that they have to to absorb. It's a it's a very dense year for a lot of people. One other quick follow up question. So you mentioned the Clean Energy Innovation Bank. Would this be a state-funded and operated entity, or would this be a third-party entity running this? It is state-owned and operated. It would be based off of actually MNCFA, the Minnesota Climate Innovation and Finance Authority that Representative Greenman, Emma Greenman in Minnesota passed in 2023. So Virginia was looking at other states where we could look at legislation that Virginia could consider adopting here and bringing into bringing into our own portfolio. And that was one that really caught a lot of folks' interest. All right. So going a little bit further on each of these bills that we've, we've just talked about here, where does there seem to be a lot of momentum and, and what has the potential to make it across the finish line? And, and you probably already have highlighted bills that have made crossover. And I think it's probably unfair to ask you to predict what is going to potentially make its way to the governor's desk. But I guess just all in all, where do you feel there's a lot of momentum right now at the legislature in Virginia? Absolutely. I do think 
the answer to your question depends on how you define finish line. Is the finish line like just getting through the legislature or is the finish line getting signed by the governor? Because I think those are two different answers right now that we're looking at. And I think the bills that I mentioned in particular, I want to say the shared solar bills and our energy efficiency bill save have a really good opportunity to make it to the governor's desk. I can't necessarily predict of these bills what the governor may or may not sign simply because that doesn't really have anything to do with the policy itself right now. This is the governor's first year with having no majority in the legislature. So we don't have a lot of guidance, really, or crystal balls to sort of tell us what we should anticipate with regards to the governor's veto pen, because it's going to be based on things well beyond energy bills or things in our control. The governor has a number of priorities he's currently debating with the House and Senate and their leadership, things like casinos and stadium for hockey, a hockey team and metro funding. And there's there's some hemp bills as well. And these are things that as an energy policy nerd, I I know literally nothing about, but I watch the fights happening in in committees enough to know that they're probably going to really impact everyone's mood when it comes to veto session. I am, however, really optimistic about that save bill, the energy efficiency bill getting signed because it is bipartisan. It has a Republican patron in the House, Delegate Michael Webert, and a Democratic patron in the Senate, Senator Cree Deeds. And it actually passed out of its House version passed out of the House with a 90 to 7 vote. So I am desperately crossing my fingers uh, that I think we can get some good energy efficiency legislation passed because we have exploding energy demand here in the Commonwealth right now. And so we've really got to be more efficient wherever we can. Wow. I, again, I just, the, the amount of parallels to what's going on here in North Carolina casinos was a big topic last year, which really dragged out our, our budget conversation here as probably a lot of folks remember. And then, yeah, the, the, the demand issue. I mean, we've seen right now in North Carolina, with our carbon plan proceedings, the utility come back and significantly e- increase their their load forecast associated with all of the economic development activity happening in the state and all the folks moving into the state. I know that's also been happening in Georgia. And now to hear that happening in Virginia, really interesting to see how it's playing out across the Southeast. One other quick follow-up that I, I forgot to ask just a minute ago around shared solar and community solar what is the the sort of market look like right now for community solar in Virginia, specifically in Dominion territory? Is there currently a viable community solar offering for residents who have an interest in signing up for something like this? So there there are programs that exist right now in Dominion territory specifically. The demand is there. One of the issues we have in Dominion territory right now is this concept of a minimum bill, and the minimum bill that has been set is so high that it really isn't addressing community members who community and shared solar is targeted at. We're talking about Virginians who either can't afford to put solar on their roofs or their roof can't support a solar array or they don't own the property, who are looking for a way to tap into this clean energy transition and take advantage of what is the cheaper form of energy that's more sustainable, that isn't impacted by giant cost fluctuations because of wars in you know Europe or the Middle East. And right now that minimum bill is keeping 
keeping that program very, very limited and out of the hands of a lot of Virginians. So the demand is there. The companies are there who are ready to, to deploy this. And it's truly right now a policy, a policy barrier. So if I, if I had to ask you to look into your crystal ball, what would you envision the potential impact of some of these pieces of legislation being, should they move forward and receive a signature by the governor, especially, you know, I'm, I'm, thinking about being able to move forward energy efficiency legislation. We were just talking about, you know, some of the the residents across the state who are continually dealing with issues around affordability and facing a high energy burden. So what could some of these pieces of legislation do to help out residents like that and continue to grow Virginia's stance in clean energy leadership nationwide? Absolutely. So let's think about energy efficiency from two sides of a coin. We'll think about the grid itself and massive expansion of energy growth here. And then we'll think, you know, Jane and, and John Smith in their home, their energy needs. So first, the Commonwealth as a whole, we have, the number has gone somewhere between 70 to 90% of the globe's internet traveling through Northern Virginia, which means we have a lot of data centers and we're, we're likely getting a lot more and, you know, we could talk data center policy endlessly for the next six months and barely come up for air. But these these facilities are in the Commonwealth. They're coming to the Commonwealth. They have a lot of interest on both sides of the aisle. So we have to figure out how we're going to power them. And in Dominion's most recent IRP or integrated resource plan, they did just what you said in North Carolina. They went back to the drawing board and said, oh, no, we have several more gigawatts worth of energy that we need to deploy in a short amount of time. One of the ways that you can help balance that is to deploy energy efficiency at the utility side of things so that you are doing more with less. So that means to meet that energy demand, we don't have to build one-to-one as much energy. We can also, to be you know using random numbers here, like half how much electricity we actually need to build by using energy efficiency more broadly. There's been a lot of reports nationwide that have shown, and across across the globe, honestly, how energy efficiency, if deployed more effectively, could be responsible for anywhere between 35 to 50% of the energy that we need to put in place to do this clean energy transition. So it's really an untapped resource from that perspective. Now, if we're talking about our own homes, everyone's energy bills are high. A lot of times that's a variety of reasons. Maybe you are a massive energy user. And if so, you know, if you are running your own little data center in your backyard, go you. But for me, where my energy use is going to come from is whether or not my home is well insulated, whether or not I have an old antiquated appliance or not, which thankfully I did personally replace (laughs) recently, whether or not, you know, I have wiring that's up to date. There's a lot of things of that energy efficiency manner. People think energy efficiency and they think, oh, energy conservation from the 1970s. I need to turn my lights off and like put on three sweaters because I can't put my thermostat up. That's not what energy efficiency is today. It's better appliances. It's better light bulbs that don't, you know, know, your old incandescent light bulb, you only got 10% of the electricity from that light bulb that you were actually paying for. Whereas the light bulbs of today, you're getting 90% of the electricity that you're paying for because you're not losing that electricity due to heat. It's really just about being smarter. And when you've got more energy efficiency appliances, when your home is insulated properly, 
everything works better, your energy bills go down. And that's fundamentally where I think we take energy efficiency from this big nuanced thing that impacts our grid. And we really boil it down to what matters in my home, my wallet, what impacts Virginians first and foremost is how, how much do they have to pay? And this helps reduce those, those bills. What other things should we be covering that we haven't talked about already and things that you want to make sure that you're elevating for folks down here in North Carolina that they should be thinking about when they're thinking about what's going on in Virginia? Well, no state is a vacuum. I'll definitely say that. And just as someone who's worked in in Virginia politics for several years, our states learn from one another. And so they really can be working, I think, a lot more collaboratively, potentially, than they are right now. Maybe with energy, particularly with transportation, given we're so connected by I-95. But one of the things that I think the climate and clean energy community has experienced this session is just how many freshman legislators we have. We have 40% brand new lawmakers across both chambers, across both parties. And some of the people who retired over the past couple of years, not all, but some of them were really energy policy wonks who could help you know, shepherd things for us within the chambers. So we've got a pretty big gap in terms of energy policy knowledge. We've definitely still got some champions whom I am greatly thankful for, but we've need, we need to invest broader in who's carrying these types of policies, who has knowledge on what, and really that work is going to start outside of session. So that's going to be a big theme for 2024. And energy policy is constantly evolving So you've got new people, you've got brand new pieces of technology and policy issues coming up. We're all sort of building the plane as we fly it. So that can really be helpful in terms of leveraging cross-state experiences, helping make introductions between lawmakers who maybe they're not in this state, but they know a lot about this issue and they can share their wisdom to some of our freshmen and vice versa. And that's something the Climate Cabinet's really all about is helping these states learn from one another, states like North Carolina and Virginia together. That's great. And I, I think about even states, you know, other states in the Southeast, like Georgia, for example, where there's been community solar legislation introduced by Republicans down there, right? So there are some opportunities for us to take lessons from some of those other states to really continue to build bipartisan support in, in both of our legislatures. So, so I, you know, with that being said, Blair, I really appreciate all of the work that you and your team are doing in Virginia to continue to to move the needle forward on clean energy deployment and uh, hope that we can take some lessons down here to North Carolina as we step into this next legislative session and, and look to advance some of our priorities that are very similar here in the state as well. So with that being said, Blair, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'll be back anytime. And as you heard from Blair, we've got some healthy competition going on from our neighbors to the north as they look to capitalize on the success they've already seen from clean energy development spurred by the Clean Economy Act, and now looking to drive additional opportunities in areas like community solar. We'll have to keep an eye on what transpires to see what they're able to get across the finish line and how some of that language may apply to some of our priorities here in North Carolina. Looking ahead, we here at the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast will also be featuring some interviews with leaders in other states across the Southeast to talk about what's taking place throughout the region at various legislatures. So keep an eye out for those episodes as well here in the very near future. 
All right, and that's all for today's episode. Have ideas for future episodes or a burning clean energy question you want to see covered? Send me a note at mattable at energync.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider contributing or sponsoring today to help ensure we can continue to bring you great content like today's episode. Sponsorship opportunities and more can be found at energync.org forward slash the squeaky clean energy podcast. And episode 104 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See you all later.